0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 22nd, 2021. It's a Monday uh and uh it's lovely out here in California in San Francisco i'm not sure what it's like on the east coast in terms of weather certainly in terms of political weather there's still a lot of cloud about there's a lot of debate about uh joe biden's build back better plan according to the guardian this morning they face an uphill uphill battle as the uh, as the bill advances to the senate uh, it got passed by the house but I'm not sure how big a deal that is. Um, it's a huge bill. It's a $2.2 trillion uh, social policy and climate bill. And when you look into it in a bit more detail, it, it really focuses on family. It enhances support for children and families with childcare subsidies and universal pre kindergarten, uh, expanding health coverage as well. So it seems to be a, a bill that particularly I think is attractive to women, to working women, uh, to mothers, to single families. Uh, I spent the weekend as always watching the the Sunday news shows uh, on Face the Nation which is run by a white woman. Um, Margaret Brennan on CBS. Uh, Brennan uh, interviewed another white woman. Uh, Senator Kirsten Kildebrand from New York, one of the more powerful senators um, in the Senate, and she seems to be very influential in Build Back Better, and indeed in building bridges with Joe Manchin, one of the dissident uh, centrist uh, Democrats that the Dems need to pass this bill. Uh, So these two quite powerful women, Gillibrand and uh, Brennan, faced each other on the television. It was good political theater. I'm not sure how effective it is. Uh, Gillibrand is a noted feminist. Uh, we're doing a show today on feminism, but there are a number of waves of it. I guess she's a first or second wave feminist. She famously said uh, a few years ago that the Lehman Brothers crisis, which of course triggered the Great Depression uh, of, the late, uh, of the late 2000s would have been averted had uh, Lehman been run uh, by women she suggested that Layman Sisters would be a better run, more responsible company than Layman Brothers. Not everyone was particularly amused by that joke. Um, some people suggest that she should cut that Lehman Sisters joke from her stump speech. Someone who also isn't particularly amused with uh, Gillibrand's remarks about uh, layman sisters, is my guest today on the show, Kyla Shuler, uh the author of a really interesting book, Trouble with White Women. And I guess uh, Kirsten Gillibrand epitomizes that white woman. Uh, Kyla is joining us from the mountains of Vermont. Very nice, Kyla. He regularly lives in Philadelphia. Uh, Kyla, does uh, Gillibrand epitomize the problematic feminism that you critique in your
1: book? I think she does, you know, and that's such a it's such an odd remark. The Lehman sisters joke is the way that she's delivered it because when she has said it publicly, she doesn't even so much say it as a joke. She says it relatively flatly, uh, but she's actually lifting it from Christine Lagarde, the uh, former IMF, uh, I believe former IMF director who did deliver it as a joke around um, 2014, 2015. But I love this example uh, that this joke gives of white feminism, because I think it really pinpoints the problem with this particular version of women's rights. And that is this dangerous fantasy that if you put a woman in charge of our existing institutions, then those institutions will be redeemed, right? You have a COO of Facebook, like Sheryl Sandberg, and somehow, magically, Facebook will become a- And Sheryl, of
0: as people watching this will know, she's currently, today at least, worth $1.9 billion. So she's one of the wealthiest women, not just in America, but in the world.
1: It's an astonishing sum. And with Sandberg, in particular, we can see now how having her in the position of second-in-command doesn't make Facebook an equitable company or even a pro-democracy country. But the white feminist fantasy is that women will redeem these otherwise highly equal institutions if we'd only put them in charge.
0: So it's, uh, it's Gillibrand, it's Margaret Brennan. Um, the, the subtitle of your book, uh, Kyla, uh, The Trouble with White Women, is A Counter History of Feminism. What is the standard history of feminism?
1: Yeah, the standard history of feminism is the story of the feminist icons that have been most, you know, visible, most celebrated as giving us feminism today. So that would be people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who outlined the initial project for women's rights beginning in the 1840s and 1850s. It'd be the early suffragists, Margaret Sanger. Betty Friedan, all the way up to someone like Cheryl Sandberg. But what I'm pointing out is that this version of feminism that says a feminist is one thing, somebody who believes in equality for women, end of story, <laughs> that that actually promotes a kind of default whiteness. When you reduce feminism to only being about sex inequality, then you permit the wealth inequalities of modern capitalism. You permit systemic racial injustice, climate injustice, disability, homophobia, disability, oppression, etc, etc. But this dominant version of feminism says gender is the only problem and therefore it has put white women in charge.
0: It's quite a controversial position, um, Kyla. Some people will be watching this as opposed to listening and note that you're a white woman. Uh, What is it about race that's so important in, in your new history of feminism?
1: Yeah, so white feminism as a term is, you know, both helpful and provocative because it doesn't refer to the racial identity of people holding this position, right? I am a white woman but my feminist politics are not white feminism, right? White feminism is a position that has a default support of whiteness, even when it's often not recognized as such. So you
0: could be theoretically, you could be a black woman and be a white feminist.
1: You could, absolutely. Um, If your version of feminism says that sex inequality is the only thing (laughs) that feminists should be centrally concerned with, uh, because I just, Kicks all other dynamics of social inequality and makes them secondary.
0: So, why? 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 Because the race stuff, as you know, and everybody knows, is incredibly incendiary. Given mm-hmm. that this focuses on ideology, why even make it about race?
1: Because the ideology of these women has been centrally about defending whiteness, right? Whether you have someone like I detail in the book, like Susan B. Anthony, who after the Civil War, when black men got the right to vote and no women did she said i will cut off my right hand before i support the right to vote for black men over women people like Elizabeth katie stanton said i deserve the right to vote because i'm a descendant of a mayflower pilgrim i am a descendant of a revolutionary war hero we are your honorable pure American wives, and yet you're giving more rights to the formerly enslaved. Only she would use a lot of racial slurs to describe the formerly enslaved. All of these figures I'm talking about didn't just ignore the existence of other women. They actually leaned in to their race and class, privilege and elitism, and tried to further marginalize people of color in order to win rights for themselves.
0: Kyla, uh, we had... Uh, last year, a really good conversation with a woman called Martha S. Jones. I'm sure you know her work. It's about the, the struggle for black women to vote. Uh, she has a wonderful new book out. Well, it's not so new now. Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. She talks about a number of the uh, uh, the women, uh, African-American women, who you also write about in the books, um, uh, Sojourner Truth in particular, uh, what was it about that generation, that 19th century and early 20th century generation of African-American women that was so important in, in seizing the right for everyone, not just white women, to vote?
1: Yeah, and Martha Jones is a tremendous historian. Um, you know, but t- typically the story has been told that it was led by figures like Stanton and Anthony Um, to fight for the for the right to vote, and that they were the most important and key pivotal figures in that charge. However, one reason that we have that story is that because literally the people who invented that there could be such a thing as the history of women's rights, and first wrote history books about women's rights were Stanton and Anthony, (laughs) and they put themselves at the center. And they erased really important feminists like Frances E.W. Harper, who I talk about in the book, who who created a position of feminism that was for the rights of the formerly enslaved, that was for black literacy, um, supported black uh, landowning, um, fought domestic violence within communities of the formerly enslaved. But she was left out of this history because she talked about other issues besides gender only. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony's supporters would give speeches to white organizations in the South saying, women's suffrage will strengthen white supremacy, that we will increase white supremacy in the nation if we allow white women to vote. So when we only tell the history of this dominant feminism, even when we don't realize that's what we're doing, we're actually permitting the kind of tactics and politics that enabled white women to give the vote while erasing the counter history that there's always been other versions of feminism led by people like uh, Sojourner Truth and especially Frances Harper, that said, no, we fight for race, class, and gender equality all at once. We don't pick and choose among those three.
0: This argument, uh kyla gives particular resonance and you recognize this in your book to the work of stacy abrams who of course is in some ways a contemporary version i guess of sojourner truth or francis harper uh, but you warn us about turning um stacy abrams into superwoman i had a show last year with erin Brockovich on the environment, suggesting that Superman's not coming. A subtitle of your book might be Superwoman's not coming. What is the, um, what's the relevance of Abrams today? And and what's your warning about fetishizing her, even though you're a big admirer of her work?
1: Yeah, you know, Stacey Abrams is tremendously important as an organizer and politician, and someone, you know, who worked with many others to, to totally change, you know, change the demographics of who is voting, um, in Georgia especially, and and also other activists working nationally. The problem is, is that after she and you know and others were able to flip Georgia in last year's elections, you know, social media was clam, you know, was clamoring with white women saying, "Oh, Stacey Abrams is a goddess. <laughs> Stacey Abrams is, you know, here to save us. Black women will save us," and that. Is so problematic because it's actually another version of a dehumanizing position. There's a, a really important um, uh, nursing scholar, Cheryl Woods Giscombe, who has described, you know, coined a term that she calls the Superwoman schema, uh, or specific, specifically the Black Superwoman schema. that says that actually often Black women get pinned into this trap where they are expected to be more than human. <laughs> Expected to save others, to to not have feelings, to be tireless, to be those kind of rescuers of larger society. So Stacey Abrams herself, as a politician, is incredible. But when other people say, "Oh, it's her job to be Superwoman and save us," it's another version of that white feminism tactic that says, "Oh, well, if we just put Stacey Abrams in charge." then everything will be better. <laughs> then she will redeem our institutions and we can keep you know, hanging out on the sofa watching Netflix. We are excused from doing the work ourselves of also transforming our institutions.
0: Although, uh, Kyla, there's a lot of shows on Netflix these days about um, this sort of thing. So maybe that wouldn't be necessarily such a bad thing. It's uh, yes, true. I am, I am
1: pro I'm pro-rest. I'm pro-nap and pro-rest. So I don't mean to, well, well, to Join the crowd.
0: We'll, we'll cre- you and I can create a little society pro-nap. Um, the book is called The Trouble with White Women. Might an alternative title have been um, The Trouble with Black Men, Kyla? I mean, what about the men in all this? I mean, not just black men, but, but, but white men too. The men are on the margins in your book. Is that uh, a, out of choice?
1: Yeah, you it, know, it, so this this book, you know, is a story of this dominant, iconic feminism that actually has, by default, supported white women and white women primarily, and then this counter history of less known figures like Polly Murray, who we've been showing on the screen, um, and Dr. Dorothy Faraby and Sandy Stone and others who are creating. Uh, feminism that supports equality for all not just sex-based equality and I've been especially interested in detailing that tension over the decades and centuries even between this version of feminism that is famous yet often leans into white supremacy and this version of feminism that's much less well known but uh, but gives us many more useful tools today to fight for equality Um, but you're absolutely right that one of the consequences of Telling the story of feminism as the struggle between the different movements is that men men often fall out. Um, although they're there as allies, people like Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, even William Lloyd Garrison's great grandson in the 1950s and 60s shows up. Um, but this book is about exposing the problems within dominant feminism. Um, and so the problems that women face by patriarchy appear. But they're not central to the to the task of the book
0: uh kyla let's uh let's uh, let's... hi this is andrew and this is keynote the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers, I want to come back, uh, Kyla, to your your theory because there is. Um, we, we joked before about me cutting you off, and you said academics often go on and on. One, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go on and on now because you do have um, you do have a, a theory at the heart of your book. Uh, Uh, which is the theory of intersectionality. This is a term we often hear thrown around. um, uh, Wikipedia, which I rely on, uh, describes intersectionality, broadening the lens of the first and second waves of feminism. What what is uh, intersectionality, Kyler, and and why is it the intellectual heart of your book?
1: Intersectionality is the center of this counter-history of feminism. And as a theory, it was initially coined uh, by the legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw, in the late 1980s. And then further developed, particularly by a black feminist sociologist, Patricia Hill Collins in the 1990s. And it's so useful because it describes a version of feminism um, where the goal isn't to put women at the top, so that they can redeem institutions is to fundamentally redistribute resources. And that goal is to create more equitable systems that serve the many, rather than just privilege the few. And then the approach that intersectionality takes to understanding power is to say that our best way of, under, of truly grasping the inequities of our world is not to go from the top, but to go from the bottom. That to take the advantage of black women or others who have been most pinned to the bottom of that hierarchy actually best illuminates the extent and effect of power. And then the method they they use to go about uh, creating more equitable systems is to work with solidarity and alliance. So the, the, the goal of intersectional feminism, or rather the method of it is to say, we need to reach out across our identity positions, to reach out across our social social positions, to form solidarity politics, to form coalitions, where together we can have something of a chance of taking on the vast structures of, of capitalism and racial injustice and and sexism in
0: particular. Carla, why is this different, for example, from 19th century Marxism and its critique of capitalism? Your book, uh, which I found very interesting, uh, The Trouble with White Women, focuses on white American women and white female feminism in America. But what about non-European feminists? What about Rosa Luxemburg, for example, who pioneered a a kind of uh, Marxist feminism Uh, The beginning of twentieth-century Europe. Why not locate intersectionality within a broader intellectual tradition?
1: So, for the contrast with nineteenth-century Marxism, you know that most often understands capitalism and class to be the base structure of society, right? The, The the we can identify one primary. Engine of social inequality and harm, and that's the capitalist economic system. Intersectional feminists, for the most part, would agree that capitalism is absolutely an engine of harm, but they would disagree that we could ever point to one structure and say that is primary, that is foundational. They would say actually we need to look at the interlocking features of. Systemic racism, sexism, and capitalism, especially—that's what the you know the intersection refers to—is that we have to figure out how to hold on to and contest multiple interlocking systems all at once, which is a a tall order, uh, though an extremely important task. That theory has been most explicitly developed and employed by black women in the US back to the mid-19th century. Absolutely, there are other important figures working on work, on developing intersections like socialist feminism, like, like you point to. And in this book I, I look at indigenous feminism in the late 19th and early 20th century and trans feminism in the 1980s to the present as also important elements of intersectional feminism. Um, I, but I also write this book as a scholar, right, as someone who's been doing this research for 20 years in the academy. That requires a level of deep expertise, and my expertise is in the United States, and so that's the the background and the knowledge that I bring to
0: this book. One of the things I liked about the book was you you bring up a a woman called Audrey Lord, who I had never really knew much about but we did a, a show recently with Maisha cherry on the ideology of rage in the african-american community and, and the book was very uh, maisha cherry's new book was very much built around audrey lord what's so interesting about lord why does she have one of the primary roles in the book um tyler audrey lord is you
1: know a, gave us some of our most helpful and inspirational frameworks for understanding the intersections of of race class sexuality um and sexism in, this, in the 70s and 80s she you know she died uh, too soon um in the mid 1980s wrote these tremendous books called the cancer journals in the 1980s um toward the end of her life but one of the things that's so exciting and crucial about her is that even as she's interrogating power from the largest structures and even as she wrote this amazing essay called the uses of the erotic that totally blows open what we might think of that counts as sexual and not sexual is that she wrote from a place of tremendous beauty and grace and love and spirit and so her works like zami her autobiography you know, um, are still standard reading on gender studies still by today, 40 years later, um, because she offers such incredible lessons for for life and living um, that also just fill one with, uh, with with hope and inspiration, which is not necessarily the standard fare when you're writing about structural inequality.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you compare a woman like Audrey Lord and perhaps someone like. Kirsten Gillibrand I mean they're quite different obviously in many ways Um, you see uh, I guess the way in which um, somebody like Gillibrand I think would be made very uneasy very uncomfortable with Lord's anger with her radicalism this is of course the heart of Maisha Cherry's new book suggesting that there is an ideology of rage of course, it's not very ladylike. Elizabeth Cady Stanton wasn't rageful. She was a polite white woman demanding the vote. Do women need to be angrier? Is there a coherent ideology of rage, which perhaps is suited to the theory of intersectionality, uh, Kyla?
1: Yeah, there is absolutely. And I would particularly recommend the, a collection of, of personal essays called Eloquent Rage by my colleague and friend Brittany Cooper, who also wrote the foreword to my book, The Trouble with White Women. And Brittany Cooper's book, Eloquent Rage, is so fantastic because it does articulate anger as a black feminist political strategy. I think on one hand, we all have all emotions. <laughs> we all have the more unpleasant emotions like fear and anger and rage. Um, but her her real genius is, is to be able to articulate that as a necessary political emotion when you're stacked up against uh, centuries and centuries of injustice. And a lot of times, absolutely, as you say, women are told, You can't be angry. Right. Or if we're angry and especially if a black woman is angry, she is liable to being uh, accused of just being another angry black woman. Right. Ruled by emotions and not by reason or logic. But what's so excellent about these works, Myesha Cherry's and Brittany Cooper's, is that they are not afraid, therefore, they're not afraid of therefore embracing emotion. They know emotion is a necessary part of our humanity um, and that it's a necessary political tool. Um, And they can work through those simple accusations and stereotypes to articulate a new kind of of political strategy. I will also say that Kristen, Kristen Gillibrand has publicly praised Britney Cooper's elephant oh, yeah. race.
0: So maybe I shouldn't be denigrating uh, <laughs> Gillibrand. I mean, she was an easy white woman to pick on, so I did.
1: <laughs> I totally in the nice thing is that we're we're all a little more complicated than we might initially see, well, right? I so hope we're complicated.
0: Big mistakes
1: in some categories. We're always learning in other in other arenas.
0: Well, your book, uh, "The Trouble with White Women." is more complicated actually than it appears it's not just an attack on white women i mean it's a lovely title it's one of the best titles i think of the year and it's a big success but it's not really an anti-white woman book you make that clear and i like the the architecture of the book the way in which each chapter sort of compares and contrasts a white and black woman so it begins with uh francis harper and elizabeth Cady stanton and there's a chapter comparing uh Harriet Beecher Stowe and Harriet Jacobs, uh, then uh, Betty Friedan and um, uh, Paulie Murray. The the, the 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 historical scholarship is substantial. And speaking of rage, the final chapter I found particularly interesting. Um, Kyla comparing uh, uh, Alexandra uh, Cortez and uh, who, of course, here in in our images. Uh, uh, photographed with a tax-the-rich uh, dress, which made a lot of people very angry. And Sheryl Sandberg, the Facebook billionaire and author of Lean In, um, it fit AOC into your narrative. Um, she's angry, but it's a very controlled, well-managed well, well managed anger, isn't it?
1: It is, absolutely. And she, you know, she has argued from the very beginning, when she first came on the political stage, defeating Joe Crowley in the in the New York primary, where she said, I'm not running from the left, I'm running from the bottom. Of course, she is absolutely a leftist politician, one of our most left politicians, but in signaling something like, I'm running from the bottom, that is one of the many times that she has said, I am with an approach that." Of intersectionality, she argues. You know, she's even argued her district. Does she use that
0: word intersectionality? She does.
1: Yeah, she said, you know, my district, Queens and the Bronx, is like a case study of the need for intersectionality. That what we're facing is the combination of of racist structures, of capitalist inequality, of you know, increasing climate injustice, and that if you were to only look at say class say as some other social as a socialist identified politicians might do you wouldn't actually be addressing the conditions of structural racism you know that are baked into an old city like new york especially and then also you know she's not afraid of femininity and i think that that's one of the most powerful parts about her feminism actually is because often white feminists have actually been afraid of femininity they have said, our job is to be taken seriously, right? We need to act like the men so we can assume those positions of power. AOC will go live on Vogue doing a makeover for an hour and not find that in contradiction with her feminist socialist politics. That kind of unapologetic uh, defense of, of femininity along with left radical politics and a fierce commitment to fighting for those most marginalized by our current structures. That makes her a key part of this feminist counter history.
0: She got some criticism for wearing this dress. I think it, it was a designer dress. I'm not sure if she actually paid for it. Is there element, is, is AOC though, an example perhaps of a white woman? I mean, very powerful, very famous, perhaps one day we'll run for president. Certainly not someone who's in any way impoverished, who uh, has become one of the most recognizable brands in the world.
1: I I would not call AOC a white feminist because her politics are so clearly aligned with those on the bottom. Um, I you know especially if you compare her to Sheryl Sandberg, something like two billion. <laughs> Um, you know, well, a compared
0: to Cheryl is gonna be poor. I mean that's no, true, true it's true, there.
1: but 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 AOC, you know, um these days, you know, as we know, what a, a couple who wants to retire at a middle class salary needs a million dollars in order to do so. AOC has nothing like that kind of money and grew up working class. Uh, but the most important part of intersectional feminism is also that. Emphasis on alliance and solidarity. A wealthy woman can be an intersectional feminist if her politics are firmly aligned with supporting those on the bottom. I don't mean wealthy in the scale of Facebook wealth, of course, as you point out, that's a whole other scale. Um, But it's not that one needs to claim themselves a, a perennial position on the bottom to be an intersectional feminist. It means working in solidarity to create more equality for all, rather than seeking your own individual rise up the corporate ladder.
0: I hope that intersectionality, um, Kyler, is going to get taught in the schools. It's certainly going to piss a lot of people off, isn't it? Um, Yeah,
1: well, yes and no. Um, It's you know it, it has an unco- it has an important in- relationship with what people would now you know what people are now calling critical race theory which they're using right. to describe any <laughs> form anything do, of anything you don't like basically right anything you don't like right and especially if it talks about racism but you know critical race theory as a as a term was coined mm-hmm. by black legal scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw when she was developing the theory of intersectionality so certainly absolutely people will will uh contest uh, a philosophy <laughs> that says we should a- attend to the reality of structural inequality in our society um but then often when you talk about what the principles actually are um sometimes people have a harder time refusing it right as famously when someone like AOC p- puts her platform online, people agree with it. When they realize it's AOC's platform, sometimes people say, oh no, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. But the basic principles of free college, free healthcare, climate, you know, supporting the ability for humans to survive on this planet, like most of us agree with that when it doesn't come branded as a particular politics.
0: Well, you're going to have to pay for Kyla Schuler's new book, The Trouble with White Women, a counter history of feminism. I love all forms of counter history. They get us thinking. And her book is very thoughtful, very provocative, uh, and very well written, and certainly very well researched. Congratulations, Kyla, on the excellent new book. Uh, as I you. said, you're in the mountains of Vermont, a uh, lucky woman at the moment. Uh, you normally live in Philadelphia. What should people be reading in addition to? The Trouble with White Women. We've talked a little bit about other people's books, uh, but what, what what other books in particular would you recommend at this um, juncture, this odd juncture in American history?
1: What really stands out to me right now is a new novel by Asali Solomon called The Days of Afrikaite, which is a retelling of a Mrs. Dalloway-like story oh. from the position of intersectional f- feminists. Uh, a coming-of-age story. It's actually set in my neighborhood of Philadelphia, and it is just a beautiful book. <laughs> like, well, how the novel. Wolfe
0: would be an example of a, an Elizabeth Cady Stanton-style feminist, wouldn't she?
1: Um, in many ways, yes. Um, Good. I've so really- it's a
0: it's a fictional, a fictional form of intersectionality, perhaps. <laughs> Kyla Schuler, is- real honor to have you on the show. Love to have you back in the not too distant future to talk more about this all-important subject. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations on the new book.
1: Thank you, and thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for watching this Keen On show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen on Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh keen on show and i hope you'll also follow up with me personally uh perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows you might email me at a.keen at me.com or you may